Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Even though I grew up Catholic, the whole idea of original sin never meant much to me. It didn't make any sense. But there is a type of original sin that is at the very founding of the USA that we've never been able to look squarely at, and which has tainted all of our culture. Actually, there are two such sins, one of which is the horrible and enduring sin of slavery and racism. But today we'll be talking about the very first sin, the devastation of the people who were on the North American continent when Europeans arrived, and the theft of the land they occupied. Today, for Spirit in Action, we'll be talking about native land return and reparations, and our guest is John Stays. John is the former executive director of the Mennonite Central Committee for the Central States, and he left that post with the intent of focusing on land reparations with natives. And this is not just a question of advocating that other people should do the work and bear the brunt. He actually made his own personal act of reparations when he inherited some Minnesota land from his family. John Stace is Mennonite, and this work of justice is deeply rooted in their worldview, which includes a tilt toward jubilee. More on that later. John's advocacy and activism has taken him to work with the Dakota people in Minnesota, in Kansas with the Kanza people, and in Seattle with the Duwamish tribes. One more thing. John carried his witness thousands and thousands of miles around the state of Minnesota on his recumbent tricycle. John Stace joins us in person before a small audience on the campus of Grinnell College in Iowa as part of the annual Friends General Conference gathering. John, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Mark. You've been here at the Friends General Conference gathering for half of this week in Grinnell, Iowa. How's your experience been, and are you worn out yet? I'm a little bit exhausted. My experience has been wonderful. I've been doing presentations in churches for five, six years now of various denominations, and I've come to a conclusion that most of the time after my presentations, I feel like there is a lot of theoretical agreement and a lot of practical inaction. So I'm connecting with people's minds, but not with their hearts. And a friend of mine said, that's because many times our compassion muscles are weak, our self-love muscles are weak. But at the gathering here with Quakers, I made a presentation about a native land return, and I felt like the response was people were anxious to know how can we make this happen where we live. So I was very much encouraged. And I think there is something about Quakers that Quakers are developing compassion within themselves. And I think that shows. I'm not putting down other denominations or religions, but I think it is a strength of the Quakers. 
And if I can make my own observation about that, I think because we don't have creeds, because we don't have the shoulds that a lot of other religions have, I think that means that we're there because we want to be there, and we're there because we're called to something already. We come ready for action. And when we're sitting in silence, like quick as I want to do, I think that the things that we call testimonies, you know, equality, peace, and integrity, all these things, I think they overlap completely heavily with what you as a Mennonite have Mm -hmm. experienced as well. It's just that we're missing so much of the other part of the things that could take our attention. It's like, okay, there's a humorous saying. Someone comes into a Quaker meeting not knowing about the silence, and he leans over to someone and says, well, when does the service start? And he says, well, when the worship ends. We have to get out there in service. That's it. What's your experience in the Mennonite tradition? My experience in the Mennonite tradition is there is a heavy emphasis on following Jesus in daily life which leads to a commitment to nonviolence. It leads to a commitment to service to others. It leads to a commitment of living the ethic of the reign of God here and now, as it was taught by Jesus. So I think for Mennonites, there's a big emphasis on discipleship, or following what we consider to be the way of Jesus. And what has happened is you've traveled around talking about native land return amongst Mennonites. Yeah. Because you've gone to a lot of other churches, not right. just Mennonite. You're talking right. to the world, right? Yeah, I, I'm talking wherever folks will have me, basically. Among Mennonites, I have found a very receptive, received very well, I think. There are not that many Mennonite churches in Minnesota, and I have spoken at most of them. In particular, Faith Mennonite Church in Minneapolis, Rochester Mennonite Church, which is a very small congregation, but a very active congregation. My home church, Bethel Mennonite Church in Mountain Lake, and First Mennonite Church in Mountain Lake, are some of the Mennonite churches in Minnesota I have talked to. I have felt that this is a message that is heard and heard deeply, But the first presentation I made was at my home church, which is in a rural area. And it was very interesting talking to native land return to farmers who I knew. And I felt like my first presentation needed to be in my hometown and talk to people that I knew. And so I've You know, that doesn't usually go well. Jesus had that experience, (laughs) I think, in Nazareth, right? Yes, yes, yes. No one took me out to the cliff and threatened to throw me over. Maybe because there are no cliffs there, but... um, (laughs) Safe place to choose. Safe place to choose, yes, yes. Or because Mennonites are nonviolent, and so (laughs) it's against the ethic. But no, I I, I felt well-received in Mennonite congregations. Well, let's define what we're talking about. Now, by the way, you do not appear to me to have much or maybe any native blood. I don't know if you're descended from indigenous people from this continent. No, No, you're right. I don't have any native blood. And so you're talking about this as a person descended from European sources, yet your engagement with native folks, you're not doing this just on your own or unqualified. Here's what I think they need. Right. So talk to me about that kind of relationship. I'll go back to the time when I was executive director of Mennonite Central Committee Central States, which is like a peace and social justice organization for Mennonites, something like American Friends Service Committee. 
And so one of the programs we developed was called the Indigenous Visioning Circle, developed out of a project at Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota among the Oglala Lakota people. After many years there, we reviewed what we were doing with our Lakota partners. And our Lakota partners told we Mennonites this, there are too many Christian groups on the reservation. You Mennonites get something that most of the other Christian groups don't get. You get the justice aspect. You know, the big issues are around water and land. They're on pollution, protection of sacred sites. And these are national and global issues. We invite you Mennonites to leave the reservation. We will continue to work with you on these global issues, on these justice issues. You need to be working with your own white people on these justice issues. We are not the ones that need to be fixed. So that's kind of where this process started for me, was with the Indigenous Visioning Circle. So you are working in solidarity with them, but not on the same plot of land. They're helping define your path. Exactly. And then in 2012, my family in southwestern Minnesota, Mountain Lake, a small town there is my hometown, decided to sell my grandparents' farm. And so I took the questions I had to the Indigenous Visioning Circle and talked about, uh, okay, here now the rubber is meeting the road. We've been talking about justice for Native people, which includes land, And my family is getting ready to sell this property because none of us grandchildren are farmers. And so consulted with them. They put me in touch with Dakota people in Minnesota. The Dakota people in Minnesota, led by a woman named Waz. I say Waz because her Dakota name is a long name that I don't pronounce correctly, but it means woman of the north. Waz had formed a nonprofit organization for Dakota land recovery. Waz and I talked, met some other Dakota people, basically made a commitment to return half the proceeds from the sale of that farmland, my share, to indigenous groups working for land recovery or land justice, including Dakota land recovery. The name of their group is Makoche Ikikchupi in Dakota. So you're talking about, as you said, the rubbers meeting the road in terms of land return, but I'm not sure. I think there's probably many definitions, but what are you speaking of? In this case, Dakota land recovery has four aspects. It is returning land to Dakota people. It is recovery of Dakota culture. It is recovery of Dakota language, and it is environmental renewal. So those are the four aspects that are a part of land recovery for this group. It pretty much is the same for other indigenous groups. These four things were lost, were taken by white invasion and settlement. Land was taken. Indigenous culture was taken. Indigenous language was taken. And there was destruction of the environment. All of those things are part of colonization. Returning land means recovery of those four things. I think as soon as we talk about these reparations or land return, when you said your first presentation was to the Mennonites who are farmers in your town, 
They're saying, what, you're going to take my fields. We've got to give all of this back. Is that a reasonable fear that that's really what should be done? Or how do we think of this? You're obviously, you said you're half because maybe the other person wasn't on the same track as you. I don't think there is a one size fits all. And I do believe that it is unrealistic to return all the land, but it is unjust to return none of the land. And I think that's a very important distinction. We need to move away from a theoretical question of whether we should return land to a practical question of how we can return land. Realistically, we're not going to return all of the land. So how can land be returned? And so the Makoche Ikechupi or Dakota Land Recovery nonprofit organization, they formed a nonprofit organization. And in this case, it's a land buyback program. And so we've been working at that for five plus years. We raised $147,000. And the organization recently purchased its first parcel of land near Granite Falls, Minnesota, which is close to the Minnesota River. I'm still having some trouble visualizing this. And one of my problems is, I'm assuming this land, it might be good to acquire it near places where there's already reservations. So first of all, what kind of reservations already exist within the state of Minnesota? And then the parcel that you just mentioned, is that contiguous? Are we expanding or are we working elsewhere? There are four tiny Dakota reservations in Minnesota just a bit about the history of Minnesota. Most of Minnesota was Dakota homeland. Uh, When the white settlers came in, the land was taken away through treaties which were rife with deception and military threat, as treaties all over were. The largest land session came in 1851. Nearly all of southern and southwestern Minnesota 24 million acres was ceded by the Dakota people to the state of Minnesota or to the United States government at that time. And the Dakota people were cheated out of their land. The Dakota leaders signed a treaty that provided all of this land in exchange for food rations and a very large amount of money. The food rations were necessary because, well, as in other places, The army, the government, was about the business of slaughtering the buffalo to starve the people so the people would trade land for food rations, which eventually they did. And then the Dakota leaders were asked to sign two pieces of paper. One was to cede the land. The other was, and this was not explained to the Dakota leaders, the other was to divert the money to fur traders to people such as Henry Sibley and Alexander Ramsey, who were the first two governors of Minnesota. So essentially it was land theft. All the money was taken away from them. It was like when you, you, know, you sign a contract, they say sign here, they say sign here. The second signature was not explained to them what they were signing away. So it's kind of like the iTunes terms of agreement, whatever, click here and you don't know what you've signed up for. Yes, and I've done that many times. We all have, and you never know. Your first child may be given (laughs) away. It just could happen. Exactly. 
So they were promised both food and money, and the money was not given to the them. The money was diverted to the fur traders, white people. By 1862, the food rations were late in being delivered. The people were starving. The money had not been paid. Uh, many, probably most of the Dakota people, decided their only recourse to defend their homeland and their culture which was being stripped away from them, was to go to war with Minnesota. It was only a six-week war. The Dakota were routed. And uh, after the war, the governor of Minnesota, Alexander Ramsey, declared that all Sioux Indians should be exterminated or removed forever from the boundaries of the state. And that was Minnesota policy. That's what happened. All Sioux or Dakota people were killed or removed from the state. So today there are these four tiny reservations, which together amount to 12 one-thousandths of 1% of the original Minnesota homeland of the Dakota. That's not justice by anyone's standard. And so when we are talking about buying back land, we're talking about buying back homeland, which is almost non-existent, adding two a very small land base for Dakota people in Minnesota. Is this being thought about in government as well as by conscientious people elsewhere? It is beginning to be thought about in government. In Minnesota, the uh, state legislature has just begun forming a committee to explore what reparations would look like for Native people and for African American people in Minnesota. Those conversations are just beginning. Waz, in her book, this Dakota woman in her book, What Does Justice Look Like?, proposed that the state of Minnesota and the federal government could return government-owned land in Minnesota to the Dakota. 22% of Minnesota is government-owned. National parks, state parks, forests, wildlife management areas, and so forth. That has gone nowhere. And so a group of young people, mostly students at the University of Minnesota, got together and formed a group called Unsettling Minnesota. These were white young people. They read Waz's book, What Does Justice Look Like?, read about land reparations, and they went to her and asked if white settlers would contribute money for Dakota people to buy back land, would that be justice? And Waz thought about that and said, yes, that would be justice. For Dakota people to spend their own money to buy back land that was stolen from them is not justice. And so this group, small group called Unsettling Minnesota, put together a silent auction and raised the first few thousand dollars that started this nonprofit group for Dakota land recovery. And so that's what we're building on today. And I'm assuming your land sale went into that fund? Yes, and are there other folks who've taken the step yet? Yes, yes, very many other folks. Uh, lots of Mennonites and lots of people from other denominations and lots of people of no faith. And they're contributing in five ways. One is, like I have done, when land or real estate is sold, give a portion of that money or return a portion of that money to land recovery. A second is uh, farm rental income return a portion of farm rental income to land recovery. A third is return the amount of your property taxes to this effort. A fourth is what is called back rent, 
or I've lived on this land all my life. I realize now it is stolen land and I have never paid any rent for living on this land. So people are doing monthly back rent. And a fifth way is people are putting land reparations in their wills or estates. Something I've looked at as well. Has there anybody who's taken the approach that that's a proper amount for a tithe? They, people are used to tithing to the church frequently. I'm not sure if that's a concept that's evolved as well. I have not seen that concept yet, but it could be. It's really a national movement. There is a Mennonite congregation in Arizona that uh, was uh, looking at returning money through the concept of what would our church pay in property taxes if we owed property taxes? And so they found out that that amount was $10,000 a year. And that, you know, the church leaders kind of, that took them back. So we they decided to do... our budget, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they decided to do $1,000. Speaking with the pastor of that church, she said, we never would have given $1,000 except we looked at the number 10,000 first, and so $1,000 seemed like the least we could do. So it can be good to use some of these concepts of back rent or pay the amount of your property taxes or pay a portion when you sell land or sell real estate. These are various ways where people can think about what's the appropriate amount for me or for us as a congregation. Are you a particular leader within the Mennonite faith about addressing this, or are you one of a committee? How do you set this up yeah. to nurture and to further this end? Glad you asked that. We have a group called the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition. We are not an official organization of Mennonite Church USA, the denomination, nor Mennonite Central Committee, the service agency nor Mennonite Mission Network. We're not an official organization. We're not a part of any of the big Mennonite operations. That's on purpose. By being a coalition that is separate but related to all of these organizations, we can be more of a prophetic voice. And I think that's a pretty good way. So I am a part of that coalition. So it's a coalition of people all across the United States looking at dismantling the doctrine of discovery. Now, I haven't talked about that yet. But I think it's time to talk about it, because if you're going to dismantle something, it's helpful to know if you know how it was assembled. And right. I've interviewed other people who've spoken a bit about this. What's your understanding of the doctrine of discovery? The doctrine of discovery is uh, something that was developed in the 1400s, beginning in 1452, what are called papal bulls, or official proclamations of the pope which in the 1450s authorized Portugal, this is a quotation, to invade, subdue, and vanquish the indigenous peoples of Africa, reduce them to perpetual slavery, and take their land and possessions. So that was applied to Africa in the middle of the 1400s. That's where the international slave trade was for the European Christian nations uh, received religious and, for them, legal justification. When the Americas were discovered, in quotes, the papal bull of 1493 extended the doctrine of discovery to the Americas. So explorers to the Americas were commanded by the Pope to invade the Americas, reduce the people to slavery, and take the land and possessions 
for their king and for the glory of the Pope and the glory of God. So this is massive land theft. It also is justification for the slave trade. None of this is legal for the indigenous nations of the Americas or Africa, but it was legal for the European Christian nations and then for, well, eventually the United States. We're going to hear more about the doctrine of discovery in just a moment as we speak with John Stace here today for Spirit in Action. Nordenspiritradio.org is our website, and I'll have links to the work that is being done by John Stace and the other Anabaptist folks working as part of the Coalition for Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery and other such good work that is going on. Also on the website for Northern Spirit Radio, you'll find a place to see the stations where we're broadcast across the United States. There's a place to post comments. Come to our website, post comment on this and other programs, and let us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Help us be better because two-way communication can help you refine where you're going and how you're getting there. There's also a donate button. This is full-time work supported only by listener donations, not by corporations, not by government. We need your help to continue. But even more so, it's really important to me personally. I started up Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul on the WHYS radio station, community radio station in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And now we're up to some 40 stations nationwide. These are stations run by, for, and at the local level. It's so valuable to have alternative news and music that just uh, the mainstream media does not prioritize. I I think that's an understatement, what I just said. So really, so important. Support your alternative media, particularly your community radio stations. And then if you can help out Northern Spirit Radio, please do that. John Stace is here. He is the former executive director of the Mennonite Central Committee for the Central States, uh, what we probably call the Midwest, mostly. I want to ask you a little bit more about that work Mm -hmm. as well. But first, back to the doctrine of discovery. As you mentioned, it comes from the Pope. Right. A lot of us these days, when we think of what is actually stated in in the papal bull, that was for Portugal. Not everywhere in Europe at that time was Catholic. Did this also apply to the non-Catholics and people like Mennonites at that day? So the development is as follows. 1452 was the papal bull which applied to Portugal going into Africa. 1455, the Pope issued another proclamation which said all the Christian nations of Europe, uh, which were all what we call European nations, were authorized to go into Africa. And if they were the first European Christian nation to go into that part of Africa, then they had dibs over the people and the land in that part of Africa. And then this was applied after uh, 1492, after 1493, when the Pope issued another proclamation to the Americas. And so this authorized Spain or Portugal or France or whoever got there first to claim that watershed for their monarch, for their king. And the Pope then would receive maybe 10% of the gold or the whatever that was returned to Europe for the church, for the Pope. So it was beneficial for everyone except the indigenous peoples of Africa and of the Americas, later extended to Australia. 
Unfortunately, the various Protestant denominations bought into this hook, line, and sinker because they came out of Europe as well. And so it didn't matter if they were Lutheran or they were Mennonite or they were Church of England. They just accepted the doctrine of discovery as something that applied to them too. So for the Church of England and their first explorer, John Cabot, was the Queen of England, or not at that time, the King, put together his own proclamation, which was the English Doctrine of Discovery, that authorized John Cabot. Anything that he discovered, New England, was thereby claimed by England, thereby became English land, and the people living there, the indigenous people, thereby became subjects of the King of England, and the land became English land. They didn't try and one-up. Actually, you know, when someone calls dibs, it says, no, I've got dibs first. And besides that, I have a right to this and that and the other thing. Were they roughly equal in terms of what they claimed as their right? There was one of the, uh, you know, papal bulls addressed this question. And it basically was first explorers from a particular nation who got there got dibs. And they got dibs for the whole watershed, the whole area that's drained by a river or whatever. The second nation, too bad, you know, you're too light. So it's very interesting. For example, what, you know, we call the Louisiana Purchase. Much of that land was discovered by Spanish explorers and claimed for Spain, and then ceded by treaty to France. And then France sold the land to the United States. So this huge expanse of land was owned by Spain and by France and by the United States. And Native people say, what? What about us? Well, they were just left out and continue to be left out to this day. They don't count because they're not white and they're not Christian, both. Basically, that's correct. That's how it was conceived. And in 1823, the United States Supreme Court made a decision in the Johnson v. McIntosh case. One of them bought a parcel of land, I believe, in Ohio from the indigenous nation. The other person bought the same parcel of land from the United States government. Supreme Court was called upon to decide which one actually owns the land. And the Supreme Court decided that the United States government owns all land within its properties, has absolute title, and indigenous nations only have the right of occupancy as agreed by the United States government. And so that's largely what the treaties became about. The United States government gives an indigenous nation authorization to occupy this area until decided otherwise. And so, as you know, the reservations got smaller and smaller and smaller until all of the what the Europeans and European-Americans thought was productive land was taken. You've been speaking, John, mainly about Minnesota because... That's the land you're from. That's when right. you have the most intimate right. information about. But you, I think you've been traveling much wider than that. Right. And right now, we're sitting here in Iowa, in Grinnell, right. Iowa. And I think you've been dealing with folks around here, too. Could you explain about your peregrinations, maybe on your bicycle, or oh, maybe yeah. you occasionally travel other ways, too, and what you've learned about the surrounding states and the nationwide movement about land right. return? Right. Well, my mom and her ancestors are from Kansas. So I spend about half the year in Minnesota and half the year in Kansas. My wife and I own a home in Kansas, which is where my job with Mennonite Central Committee Central States was located. 
So I spend a lot of time in Kansas working on native land return there through a group called the Kanza Heritage Society, which was started by a retired Mennonite pastor named Florence Schlonegger. When Florence's family sold the farm on which she grew up, she decided to return a large portion of the proceeds that would have gone to her to the Kanza Heritage Society. Now, Kansas is named after the Kanza Nation, or sometimes called the Kaw Nation, which at one point before white settlement was about 40% of what is today Kansas. So I do do a promotion of Kanza Heritage Society in Kansas. Waziatawi was of Dakota in Minnesota, and I were invited by the Seattle Mennonite Church in Washington State to talk about land return there. The indigenous group in Seattle is Duwamish. Chief Seattle was Duwamish. And we talked about land return. The Seattle Mennonite Church and other people who came to our presentations were very interested and began contributing to something called Real Rent Duwamish, which is a nonprofit organization that the Duwamish put together. So again, it's the same idea. People are living on stolen land, they can pay rent. So Seattle Mennonite Church and Mennonites in Seattle are doing that. So those are three examples, the one in Minnesota, the one in Kansas, the one in Washington State, where this is happening. Again, the idea is make relationships with the indigenous people whose homeland you are on and figure out how to make reparations. Now, I think reparations can go for recovery of land, recovery of culture, recovery of language, because those are the three things that were stolen by the settlers from the native people. Well, you knew just where I was going with my next question, because we focused on the land for the most part, but language and culture are such important elements. There have been small pockets of culture in some place. You mentioned the Pine Ridge Reservation, and I think they've actually been doing some nurture of Mm -hmm. culture there. Mm -hmm. I know that there's Native American communities right in the Twin Cities as well, right? So what's happening and how do we, as people descended mainly from folks who are from Europe, how do we participate to help nurture that? So the first thing is show up at events where there are indigenous people in your community or your area. And be persistent about that, and you will begin to make relationships with people, indigenous people. Second, look for those indigenous people who are working for justice for their own communities. And that justice can be around many issues. It often can be around recovery of culture and recovery of language, protection of sacred sites. Doesn't necessarily have to be about recovery of land. The local indigenous population may not have land as the first priority for them. We just need to follow the indigenous leadership that is there and then see how you can connect to that work for indigenous justice and then follow through on your commitments. As we know, trust has been broken over and over between indigenous people and white people. Chief Red Cloud of the Oglala of the Lakota said, The white people made us many promises, but they kept only one. They promised to take our land, and they did. We have to keep our promises. 
so we can regain the trust of folks who have been wronged many times over. In my lifetime, particularly as I've moved up towards Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I used to live in southeastern Wisconsin, the spearfishing rights, which were one of the things specifically ceded by treaty, were hotly debated because, of course, they're European folks who say, no, I want to go fishing. I don't want them to take all of it. Why don't they respect our hunting seasons? Does that happen in Minnesota as well or elsewhere? Sure, of course it happens. It happens in New York State, it happens in Minnesota, it happens it happens all over. The rights to fishing in Minnesota, one of the big issues right now in northern Minnesota among the Ojibwe or Anishinaabe people is called Line 3, which is the Enbridge oil pipeline going through Minnesota from the tar sands in Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin, down to New Orleans, this long pipeline to get oil to the Gulf. And out of the, it's for export. The problem is that the pipeline goes right through the 1854 treaty territories where the Ojibwe, or sometimes called Anishinaabe people, were promised the wild rice, the food that grows on water, the fishing, the land, the ceremonies, you know, this was promised to them. The oil pipeline threatens all of that. And so the Ojibwe are fiercely opposing that and asking for white people to stand with them against this pipeline. It is an environmental thing, but it is also a justice thing for the Ojibwe people. Well, that area where they would put the pipeline through, is this just another one of the pipelines like the one past Standing Rock? Yes, yes. It's the same. It's the same. It's basically the same issue. Eventually, it was ruled that they could go past Standing Rock, and the tribe there, I understand, signed off on it. They may have had a gun to their head again, which is kind of the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Tribes can be in a very difficult situation here because the tribe may at some point realize We can continue to oppose this and get nothing, and they're going to go through anyway. Or we can get something if we agree to something. And that's often what happens. Many times these large corporations have a lot of money at stake, and they're willing to give a lot of money to tribes who many times do not have much money, like the Dakota and Lakota people in North Dakota, which are not casino-rich populations. So the tribe, the leaders may eventually say they're going through anyway. They decided not to go on the north side of Bismarck because that could have polluted Bismarck, North Dakota, an almost all-white city. So that was the first route that was proposed. They decided to go on the south side of Bismarck, which then the pollution would go to the reservation. The reservation did not have the political power, even with thousands of people coming into protest to stop the pipeline going through. So the reservation, the Dakota and Lakota people of North Dakota lost, but they may have gotten some money in return from the corporations because that's the best they could do. This is kind of the story of treaties. The native people finally deciding we can't win militarily. They're coming through anyway. Let's get what we can. It's a question of power. and Absolutely a question pe- of power. If I've got your arm twisted, you may or may not want to agree with me, but you may do that to end the pain or the other right. efforts that are made against us. 
We're speaking, folks, with John Stace. He is active on the issue of native land return, particularly yes. from his home, Minnesota, but also spanning out across the central states because he was, in fact, the former executive director of the Mennonite Central Committee for Central States well networked there and obviously networking with Quakers here right. as we join at the Friends General Conference gathering being held in Grinnell, Iowa this year. Next year, are you going to come out to visit us in Virginia? I'm sure they have issues going out there too. <laughs> I'm sure they do. We will see. I don't know. I don't know. There are, there are a number of Quakers also working on these issues. I mean, that's why I was invited in. And I'm, I'm very happy to make these Quaker partnerships. Folks can also look on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website and listen to my interview with Paula Palmer, who is working on a different slice of the issue, but it is about Native fair rights. And yep. Quakers have a long-term concern about this, which we share with a number of other groups who hold integrity high. And this is a very strong issue of integrity. Speaking of integrity, mm-hmm. your bicycle... Yeah. I've seen wonderful pictures of you traveling about on this. Is there a particular reason you're doing this work or any of yeah. your work on bicycle versus right. on right. the iron horse or any of the other conveyances that Europeans brought? Yeah, there are two reasons for it. After my uh, family sold my grandparents' farm in Minnesota in 2012, the next year, 2013, Um, I decided to take two months away from my job at Mennonite Central Committee and ride my trike through 40 Minnesota counties, former Dakota homeland, to promote awareness, basically. So I have a recumbent tricycle, one of these lowriders with a flag on the back of it that you've probably seen. And I've got a little trailer where I kept my tent and my sleeping bag and other articles back there. So I did about a 2,000-mile trip over uh, eight weeks through 40 counties. And Monday through Friday, I would stop at the county seat in each county and see if I could get a uh, photo and a newspaper article about Dakota land return and what can be done and what is being done. So I succeeded in getting 29 articles from that. I found that in many of these county seats, we're talking about, you know, small counties where the population of the county seat is 3,000 people or 5,000 people, pretty small towns. And it's a big deal when somebody is, you know, riding a bicycle through their town and especially a funny looking thing like a recumbent tricycle. So if anything, they want to come out and take a picture and then they'll do an article about why I am doing this. I did it to raise awareness about the possibilities for Dakota land return. I did it because it is what I love to do. I was giving a presentation at a church, and a question came, uh, boy, that looks like a big sacrifice to you know, ride all that way, to pedal all that way. And my wife stood up and said, that's no sacrifice, that's what he loves to do, <laughs> which is exactly right. If you can combine what you love to do with doing justice, well, that's, that's heaven in my book. And finally, I do it because there is an environmental concern in all of this. We are returning land, at least in my opinion, because we are concerned about what is right by the land, which includes let's get away from reliance on fossil fuels 
on the extraction that it takes to get the oil out of the ground, which is increasingly more destructive. Let's look towards sustainable and renewable green energy sources. So by riding my trike, I kind of try to, well, I do try to have a visual representation of there's another way to get around. And because for people who have not been to Minnesota, Minnesota is a big state. Yeah. Covering yeah. 43 of the counties, I don't know how many, is it 43 total? 40, 40 that I did, yeah. 40 that you did. Yeah. This is many, many miles. This yeah. is not a weekend jaunt. No, this right? was 2,000 miles altogether. How many tires did you go through? I did have a flat tire on two occasions. But, you know, anybody who rides bike or trike can change a tire just with, you know, what, what you have. You have extra tubes with you. You have a pump with you. You know, it's no big deal. But I didn't go through, I didn't go through tires. My son and two of his friends did a trip around Lake Michigan. Yeah, they yeah circum- cool. Which is, you know, 1,000-plus cool. miles yeah, that cool. they, they did. And he said in the course of it he had four flat tires. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just figuring you're doing it left and right. But the real thing I was wondering, John, is you're going to these places. You're interesting because yeah. you're on this trike. But I also imagine as soon as you bring up native land return, there's some people whose fear hackles get raised. And I was just wondering if you got hated on because of this, <laughs> if you got cried down, dismissed, or maybe in some way felt insecure. I never felt insecure. Well, about that. There were two occasions where I'm, you know, you ride, I'm riding down the side of the road and I, I think the car that passed me was too close, you know, and so I was like, this can be kind of dangerous, you know, but, uh, uh, but I never felt insecure about the issue that I was raising. What I felt more was that people wanted to ignore the issue. So I would stop, you know, at a pizza place or something to eat and my trike would be there with my Dakota land recovery flag on my trike and people would come over and ask me about what I was doing and so forth. And I noticed that people did, did, were uncomfortable talking about native land, about Dakota land return. They didn't really say they were opposed to it, but it was quite clear that they were uncomfortable and they wanted to talk about my trike and my, and my ride. I felt, though, when I met with the reporters or the editors of the newspapers, there was actually more. They wanted to know the substance of why I was doing this, whether that was from personal interest or that was from professional, you know, it's part of their job to get the story. And I felt pretty good about the coverage. I did notice that in the smaller county seats, I tended to get more coverage. It was hard to get coverage like in Rochester, Minnesota, which is a larger community, I did not get an article there. I remember I called on my cell phone before I got there and asked to speak with an editor. And the person I talked to said, well, we have bicycles come through here, through here all the time. We're not interested. So I went to the newspaper office and sat in the office. And the receptionist said, are you waiting for a reporter? And I said, yes, this is what I'm here for. I sat there for probably two hours, and finally somebody came down and talked to me, but they never put an article in there. So I was persistent, but the larger the town, the less they were interested. 
the town where I had a very good article, though, was the Mankato Free Press. Mankato's at, I don't know, maybe 30,000, 50,000, somewhere in there. It's a pretty large-sized town for Minnesota. Uh, so it wasn't completely that way, but pretty much the smaller towns would do articles. The larger towns, it was more difficult to get an article. You know, John, in Quaker tradition, when someone carries a concern and, you know, they get minuted by their monthly meeting and maybe by their quarterly or yearly meeting, yeah. they travel around very commonly these days. You travel with a, a person who accompanies you, might be called an elder, or there's other terms that are used for it. And I was just wondering if that has any connection at all with Mennonite practice in your case. And I was specifically saying, how many people would have stepped up if they had seen you and someone who was very clearly uh, Lakota of some mm-hmm. sort mm-hmm. traveling together delivering this message? That's very interesting. I'm going to respond to that by saying when I started the tricycle tour, from my hometown, Mountain Lake, Minnesota, and staying at uh, my mom's house. My father had passed away. So uh, staying at my mom's house, Waz and uh, Neil, another one of the uh, people uh, you know, on the uh, nonprofit organization board, two Dakota people, uh, called me and said, we would like to come down and um, basically hold a Dakota prayer service for you, kind of for your safety and for blessings for your trip. But they've also been very clear that it is white people's responsibility to talk to other white people. 95%, 98% of the Dakota and other indigenous populations were killed through disease, through direct violence, through forced removals, through starvation. So there are, there are not that many indigenous people left compared to the millions who lived here before white invasion and settlement. Many of them are stretched thin. Many of them don't have the resources for this work. And so when they did this ceremony with me, which was in Dakota, but they translated parts of it, I took that to be, it is my responsibility as a white person and the responsibility of other white people who are concerned about this to do the awareness raising and the fundraising among white Minnesotans. It is the responsibility of the Dakota people to, once the money is raised, to put it to good use and to plan how they are going to do that. There have been occasions where I have spoken with Waz or with one of the other board members about this to white audiences, but for the most part, it's white people speaking to other white people. So in part, with the Dakota folks, are they're informing how you do your work to some yes. degree. Is there any particular slant on this work that is clearly informed by your Mennonite faith? Any thing that would be distinctive as opposed to what a Quaker or a Methodist or someone else. Yeah. I think theologically there are, I'll use some theological terms, there are particular Christological, ecclesiological perspectives, some of which relate to Quakers. Christological means what's the meaning of Jesus for us. For Mennonites, the central meaning is discipleship or following. I believe Many biblical scholars believe that Jesus proclaimed the Jubilee year in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, when Jesus proclaimed release for the captives, set the oppressed free, recovery of sight to the blind, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which is the 50th year in Leviticus, an Old Testament chapter, when land would be returned to the original families. 
I think Jesus proclaimed that. And Jesus proclaimed it for universal, for non-Jews as well. So this following Jesus in proclaiming returning land to the original families, it has a particular Mennonite ring to it. Mennonites, in terms of the church, believe in the gathered community, which lives an alternative lifestyle. So for many people, you look at that alternative lifestyle and you think, well, it's simple living, it's the black bumper cars for some Mennonites and so forth. But there is this sense that the church lives an alternative ethic, even if the rest of the world doesn't believe in it. And so it's a little bit easier to talk about doesn't matter if the rest of the world isn't going to return land to indigenous people. We're going to do it. So there's that. And then in terms of eschatology or the meaning of the last things or ultimate things for us, Jesus prayed, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's again that kind of thing. Well, if we think that the land should be returned, we're not going to wait for the return of Jesus for that to happen. We're going to live that way now. So I think these are like three theological tenets that are very important to Mennonites, not that they don't have uh, similarities in other traditions, but they're kind of an emphasis for Mennonites. Well, and I'm thankful that they are. And I'm thankful that you've chosen to do this work, that you followed this leading. It sounds to me like you gave up a paying gig to do your peddling gig. Uh, that <laughs> you, Yeah, 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 yeah. In a way. I mean, I, I did take retirement a little bit early because I decided that I, this is what I love to do. And I found myself at work thinking I'd rather be doing this. So finally one day I just decided, okay. I'm going to do what I love to do, and I've not regretted that. And we don't regret it. In fact, we embrace it. want to encourage you. Thank you for help leading the way, opening ways, providing by example, by saying, okay, this is my proceeds from this farm that I received from stolen goods, in, in essence, and having the integrity to step forward that way. And thank you so much for taking part in the Friends General Conference gathering where we've been and for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. And again, folks, we've been speaking with John Stace. He was the executive director of the Mennonite Central Committee for the Central States, joining us here today for Spirit in Action, and we'll see you next week. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 